This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to New Books and Jewish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Amber Nickel, the host of the channel, and today we are going to be talking with Kiara Kamarda, Amanda Sherrick, and Catherine Trostel about their most recent publication, The Venice Ghetto, A Memory Space That Travels, which came out this year on University of Massachusetts Press. Kiara is a PhD, has a PhD in Asian and African studies from the Hebrew department at Ka Foskari University of Venice. She is currently working at the Italia Books National Cataloging Project, managed by the Union of Italian Jewish Community, the National Library of Israel, and the National Central Library of Rome. Amanda has a PhD in English from the University of California, Riverside. She specializes in 19th century British and related literatures, gender studies, and Jewish studies, among other specialties. She is also the Assistant Dean of Students for the Graduate Life Office at Stanford University. Uh, And Catherine, who we're going to refer to as Katie for the remainder of this talk, completed her PhD in literature at the University of California, Santa Cruz. She's an assistant professor of English at Ursuline College. All three are accomplished writers and thinkers, uh, which is why it is such a delight to have read The Venice Ghetto, A Memory Space That Travels. And I am really excited to have a conversation with you all about this today. So I want to start with uh, a question that I usually like to intro with, and uh, that is, can you share with us a little bit about what led you to write The Venice Ghetto? Thank you so much, Amber, for having us on the podcast today. Um, This group actually formed around 2016, which was the 500th anniversary of the space of the Venice Ghetto. And at that time, we founded a group called the Venice Ghetto Collaboration, which was an interdisciplinary group of humanities scholars um, that actually had an immersive workshop in which we explored the legacy of the historic space about 500 uh, years after its initial founding. Um, And this actually began with uh, a mentor, Marie Baumgarten, whose lifelong passion for the Venice Ghetto um, inspired this early career scholar workshop. He really wanted to make sure that his work was carried on to the next generation of thinkers and scholars, um, and that this work would be committed to grounded place-based scholarship. So he actually, um, through the UC Santa Cruz Uh, Center for Jewish Studies, uh, initiated this call for early career scholars to gather in the space of the ghetto uh, and to really think about what this space meant 500 years after its founding 
And we did this in collaboration with an organization called Bet Venencia, uh, which was founded by Shaul Bassi, who also is one of the contributors to the collection. So this is really uh, the result of many years of work and collaboration. And the idea was to create interlinking essays that spanned disciplinary boundaries. So this is sort of the result of uh, a lot of collaboration and a lot of uh, time spent together physically in the ghetto itself. Thanks, Katie. Uh, This really is, I think, a truly interdisciplinary work, and it shows. I was wondering if you all might be willing to share a little bit about the creative process that went into the writing and compilation of the Venice Ghetto. Yeah, I can take that one. Um, It was really important that all of us engaged with the physical spaces, community, Italian scholarly community, already doing a lot of this work on the ground. Shaul, as Katie mentioned, and Chiara and Federica's work, which you'll see in the actual collection, their work to preserve and activate different aspects of the ghetto with their respective colleagues and organizations really provided a foundation for our project um, and, and really inspired the creative process And I think we really were excited to see how each of the subsections kind of dance with the author's personal experience of the physical ghetto. It's it's history or legacy um, as viewed through um, memory, through the archive, through their personal stories. And these personal resonances, I think, really add to the collection and kind of come through in the passionate pleas that Chiara and Federica have have for ensuring the archive and library survives against very real and dire concerns about flooding and climate change. You'll hear this in the in Marjorie and Margot's interviews with Katie and I as they bring us kind of behind the scenes to their own creative processes that show how um, they were grappling with so many deep personal themes of identity, grief, um, connection, and hope that stem from engaging with the Jewish heritage site and their own complex personal histories. Clive Sinclair's piece, which is um, posthumously uh, reproduced in in this edited collection, um, describes a moment that so many have been waiting hundreds of years to see, um, a reconciliation between the Jewish ghetto and its most iconic literary figure, Shakespeare Shylock. Um, And there was something significantly cathartic about that. Right. Um, And at this moment, at a moment like this one, each of the essays has been amplified by the conditions and aftermath of the COVID-19 pandemic, which we talk about in our forward and and Shaul and uh, James E. Young write um, about a little bit in our collection. And it's really shown us that in no uncertain terms, that if one of us, if no one is an island unto themselves when it comes to massive global crises, we must absolutely pay attention to the shared ground and places and spaces that continue to divide and connect us. Thank you, Amanda. And um, I think for listeners today uh, who might be unfamiliar with the Venisketto and its history, it might be uh, pertinent to kind of give a brief overview of the creation of the ghetto and why it remains a vital topic of study today. Uh, Kiara, I was wondering if you might be willing to answer this one for us. Of course, of course, with pleasure. The Venice Ghetto was established by decree of Doge Leonardo Loredan on March the 29th, 1516, 
and it was one of the first places where people were forced to live apart from the other citizens and were controlled because of their religious difference. The name Ghetto itself originated in Venice, as the small island in which it is located had once been used as a foundry called Ghetto in Venetian dialect that turned into Ghetto due to the pronunciation of the neighborhood's residents. Its population reached a peak in the 17th century when 5,000 Jews inhabited this very small area. They hailed from Italy, Germany, France, Spain, and the Ottoman Empire, and each group had its own synagogue called the Scuola, school. It is still possible to visit five beautiful synagogues in the area, the German one, Scuola Grande Tedesca, the Italian one, Scuola Italiana, uh, the Spanish and Portuguese called uh, Scuola Spagnola, and the Levantine Sephardi communities, Scuola Levantina. Then the fifth one is the small Scuola Canton that was probably built as a private synagogue and served the Venetian Ashkenazi community. Today, the Scuola Grande Spagnola is used in the summer, while in winter the community switches to the Scuola Levantina because it has heating. Across time, uh, this confinement was a limit, of course, but it could also be an opportunity for cultural exchange. Jewish working activities were limited in Venice as elsewhere, actually, <clears throat> and these restrictions could be enforced from time to time. Jews were mainly merchants and bankers or had secondhand store. When the ghetto was abolished, it was in 1797 due to Napoleon, uh, wealthy Jews left the ghetto area and moved to more elegant and wider parts of the city. But the ghetto was still the core of Venetian Jewry, as all religious services and supplies were concentrated in the area. Just before World War II, the Jewish population in Venice counted about 1,200 residents. Today, they are about 450, uh, while the city's total population hovers around uh, 58,000. The Jewish character of the neighborhood, however, is marked today by the presence of the Chabad Lubavitch movement, who has uh, recently resettled in the area from other parts of Europe and from the United States. So the local Jewish community is not that visible today. In spite of the present day small Jewish population, the Venice ghetto still represents a very interesting place to study and to think about. It attracts many tourists, people looking for the ancestors' origins and documents, uh, family history, as well as scholars of different fields, just like the members of our Venice Ghetto Collaboration Group. This place preserves a big amount of historical proofs, documents, memories that still need to be investigated. This is what Federica Ruspio and I tried to do while working at the Renato Maestro Library and Archive. After cataloging the early Hebrew book collection of the Jewish community, 
I studied many of the provenances of this collection and I published the result of this research in my PhD dissertation. In the collection, there is a summary of um, this topic and especially uh, of why was Venice important for Hebrew printing. Thank you, Kiara. Um, I want to take a moment to now focus on the subtitle, as this phrase encompasses a rather complex phenomena, as you find out reading the text. And that subtitle is a memory space that travels. I know, Amanda and uh, Katie, that you both take up this question in a section by the same name. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by a memory space that travels? Yeah, so one of the works that we read as we were thinking about this collection is actually a piece called If Venice Dies, which was published in 2016. And in this book, um, Cetus, who's the author, suggests that Venice as a city becomes the object of study. And there's a really interesting quote. He says, it's a thinking machine that allows us to ponder the very idea of the, of the city, citizenship practices, urban life as sediments of history, as the experience of the here and now, as well as a project for a possible future. So we were really thinking about what does it mean to study the ghetto as a heritage site and what kind of memory work is possible when we think about this heritage site as both a concrete space, but also a space of memory and a space in the mind. Um, so we're really juxtaposing this idea of rooted site and global metaphor. Um, and throughout the collection, we're playing with all of these different contradictions. Um, what does it mean to be both a historical site and a place of memory? Um, James Young actually pulls this quote um, from Marjorie Agosin, who's a Chilean-American scholar, Jewish scholar, and also poet. And I actually did an interview with her in 2016 about what she thought this site meant to us in the 21st century. And Young pulls this into the collection as well. And she says that the Venice ghetto is basically a portal. And she says it's a portal to what is good, to what is evil, to what is remembered, and to what is often forgotten, a portal of oblivion and remembrance. So we're really thinking about this idea of ghetto as portal, ghetto as laboratory, as cultural laboratory, and something that helps us shed light both on the past and the present. Um, so in the collection, we think about this space as a site of liminality. It's on the water's edge. Um, and more than 500 years after its founding, it continues to serve as this important site for thinking through 21st century issues, as Amanda mentioned, like climate change, like the concept of refuge, like migration. And I always use this example because it's close to home for me, but we open the collection with this striking image of former U.S. Poet Laureate Rita Dove standing in the uh, Spanish synagogue in the ghetto in 2014. And this just has particular resonance for me because I teach and work in Cleveland, and Dove is from the greater Cleveland area from Akron. And she was actually invited by Shaul Basi into the space of the ghetto to create new poetry from this symbolic site. And so we think a lot about how creative acts um, this idea of the memory space that travels, um, thread together different pasts and presents and think towards more just futures. 
Um, she's both a poet and a cartographer in this work that she creates from the side of the ghetto, as she almost imagines liberating bodies from ghettoized spaces through acts of creative play. So as I teach and work in Cleveland, as I mentioned, I often show this picture of her within this symbolic site, again, at the 500th anniversary, as we meditate sort of on the meeting of the site and the space and um, the connections that it has to both Dove's own life and experience and to my students' life and experiences as we live and work within a highly segregated region of the U.S. where the word ghetto still has a lot of resonance. So again, this collection just sort of asks us to think about the way in which the tides of memory work. We're using this water metaphor throughout um, how the memory sort of enters, recedes, leaves behind overlapping traces on the shore, and we're calling this a kind of lapidary memory. So how does the ghetto kind of uh, infuse different spaces and times with which it interacts? This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Thank you, Katie. This collection is broken up into four sections titled The Archives, The Blueprint, The Map, and The Tourist. I want to take a, a moment to talk about these sections. I was wondering if you could share with us how you conceptualized each of these sections and what listeners can anticipate reading in each of them. Thank you for asking that question. Um, we had a lot of fun putting this together. The book is organized, as you mentioned, in these four discrete um, kind of categories, um, but there by no means is a limit as to how we can approach the Venice ghetto. Um, these are really helpful frameworks, as Katie kind of identified when we were thinking about our audience, um, which would be an interdisciplinary group that was would be able to have like a range of expertise around the ghetto, um, a lot of different um, interests um, about why they might be approaching the site. And so we wanted to give, as we kind of flesh out this like very complex um, idea of a memory space that travels, some really discrete entry points. So we did some work up front to kind of establish uh, kind of entryways, if we're thinking about a portal, into different ways of approaching the ghetto that don't actually have to go from start to finish. You could start with one, you could visit another. Um, and we really love the kind of highly mobile uh, concepts that we are using, um, the containers that we're using to kind of bring this together. And um, we are fans of uh, Walter Benjamin. And, and so um, I, I will happily say that in we as we like kind of fleshed out the archive, the blueprint, um, <clears throat> uh, the map and the tourists, we really were thinking of um, kind of drawing on some of our, our work around the arcades project as well um, and how he organizes um, different pieces that may seem disparate and puts them together to make something really um, profound. Um, again, anchor points for people who have um, limited or a lot of experience with the Venice ghetto. So the first section, the archive, um, investigate, 
investigates the history and conditions of the physical space. Um, it's the section that Chiara mentioned that her and Federica kind of visit the, the focus on the library, as well as um, the archives themselves as, as again, two parts of uh, that are often conflated, um, but also have very distinct focus uh, foci and, and also making sure that they are um, uh, understood as both um, as existing, but also endangered uh, archives as both um, thinking about the circulation of the work and how that has changed over time um, and what it could mean for the future. They ask really great questions if you're interested in in, in thinking about the, the ethical questions of stewardship of archives. Um, someone should definitely start with that s- section. Um, also, if you just have uh, a curiosity around, you know, how did these books really impact the lives of the people who live there? Um, there I don't want to give away too many um, of the uh, great things about the chapter, um, but it, it really did allow people to move in different ways, um, not just their thoughts, but their actual like physical bodies throughout the um, the time. So please do check that out. Um, in the um, second section, the blueprint, we had a lot of fun with this because it was, it was really interesting. You know, there's so much emphasis on Shakespeare's Shylock and Shaul Bassi is the best person if, if you want to learn more about why this is such a, an interesting um, character for the Venice ghetto. There's so much out there. And so our section is really kind of gesturing towards all the different work uh, about why Shylock is so significant to the Venice ghetto, but also thinking about it in the context of the 500th anniversary. And so it's easy to kind of jump in and see Shakespeare as this kind of primary text for a space that he, uh, I don't know if he ever actually visited. Um, And really it was, um, you know, uh, Professor Lattes, Andres Lattes, who did a really nice job of kind of giving us some of that historical context about Italian ghettos. Um, So if you're interested in like the history and the um, sociological components, the economic components of what actually made merchants and um, bankers even possible, you should absolutely check out that essay. Um, The other essays really focus on kind of a like kind of tour de force of like how Shylock has changed over time and how it was staged, how it uh, changed depending on the casting. And so Michael Shapiro's essay is fabulous if you have an interest in that. And his essay is really an entryway into a really fabulous collection um, that is completely dedicated to this topic. So again, we're using our, our section, the blueprint as a way into some of those conversations. Um, And the map as well, uh, the section really focuses on literature um, and how the Venice ghetto was such an important, um, iconic um, uh, literary device for so many, from the 19th century forward, for so many uh, Jewish thinkers and writers um, to really grapple with serious challenges of their moment, crises in their moment, whether it was the first immigration laws in England to the um, World War II to thinking about Mela and post-colonial literature. There's so many different entry points to think about how the Venice ghetto continued to travel in the minds of a generation and the generations after that. And so it's really, if you're, if you're a fan of literature, if you're a fan of different geographies, uh, you should start there. In the 
tourist section, uh, we were really thinking about the future of the space, inspired by the work that, again, going back to the archive, that they're trying to preserve and really grapple with 21st question, first century questions around climate change, around mass migration, um, around um, there's a uh, tourism that is extractive and the toll that that's taking um, on the actual physical site, um, how it's eroding the lagoon in really uneven ways that will continue to um, have a, an impact. As James Young said, the, the city of Venice is, is hovering on this water and this water keeps rising. And so what we try to do is think back to what Katie said is the creative process that allows us to really think of the Venice ghetto as a memory space, but also like a space where where we have actual responsibilities um, um, to really think about uh, our impact um, as we do scholarship, as we do the work around um, building commu- community around this, this topic, um, and, and really thinking about engaging with it, as I mentioned, with the site in an ethical way, um, and how can we use our work to really promote those conversations um, in ways that feel uh, committed to um, these larger larger goals that we have. Thank you for that amazing overview. I know that I truly enjoyed reading it and that there's a lot to take away. For those that are interested, the math was my favorite section. Um, But we have taken up quite a bit of your time today, and I want to thank you for for coming in. I do want to wrap up our interview, though, with my traditional closing question on New Books Network. And that is, what are you all working on now? So thanks for that question. Um, Actually, Amanda, Sherrick, and I are both uh, co-authors on a new chapter that's coming out in an edited collection by Ignacio Lopez Calvo and Marjorie Agosin called Refugees, Refuge, and Human Displacement. And that's coming out in November of 2022. And the piece that we wrote is called Restoring the Venice Ghetto, the Refugee in Times of Global Crisis. And in the chapter, what we're, we're thinking about, which is an, sort of an extension of this book, is three case studies of how artists, architects, and authors engage in sort of an imaginative process of world building as they recode or restory narratives that circulate around the space of the ghetto. Um, So we're kind of thinking about new constellations of memory. Um, We called it in the article a reverse excavation where we start from the traces and absences and then follow the currents to sort of recall the multiple lives and crises that have crossed the space of the ghetto. And again, we've returned to our idea of lapidary memories, um, this idea of etching intricate interlacings on the sand as the waves kind of slip back into the sea. So the artifacts that we're exploring are really calling attention to absences and asking us to bear witness to the 500-year-old site because these lessons just continue to resonate with the present. And they also ask us to envision new and more just futures. So in this piece, we look at the ruins of a boat that carried migrants in 2015 to Venice, whose presence calls into question what it means to be a sanctuary city. We look at a poem by the late artist-in-residence Nina Alexander, who also created work from the site of the Venice ghetto at the invitation of Shaul Bassi, which connects the body of a 21st century migrant seeking refuge to the 16th century Jewish poet and ghetto dweller Sara Kopia Sulam. 
And we also look at an experimental architectural project called Ghetto Sanctuary for Sale, which imagines a new relationship between the tourist and the refugee, which again is all about learning lessons from an old history as it envisions a Venice that really truly embraces its title of civic city. So we're really excited to share that in November. That sounds really exciting, and I'm happy to read that one as well. So I've added it to my to-read list. Um, Kiara, what are you up to next? Right now, I am working as an early Hebrew book cataloger for the Italian Books Project that, as you have mentioned, is managed by the Union of Italian Jewish Communities, the National Library of Israel, and the National Central Library of Rome, and uh, sponsored by the Rothschild Foundation Europe. And I am also working at an independent research project aiming at finding and cataloging all early Hebrew books that are kept in Sicilian libraries. I really longed to be able to conduct this research as Sicily is my land of origin and it is a place where I am currently living. So I wish to contribute to this field of studies here where it is not that common as there is very limited Jewish presence in the whole island. I wish to make this heritage known to the public and available for consultation. Finally, I am involved in the organization of a two-week event dedicated to Jewish culture and its different aspects that takes place every year in Trapani, Sicily. Thank you um, both for that work that you do, actually all of the work that all of you are doing, uh, both as writers and thinkers, but also as activists that are making sure that you preserve Jewish memorial culture um, and written culture, as well as educate uh, globally, whether it be in Ohio or Italy. Um, So I want to thank all of you for joining us here on New Books in Jewish Studies today. And uh, for the listeners out there, if today's discussion piqued your interest, you can pick up a copy of The Venice Ghetto, A Memory Space That Travels, directly from University of Massachusetts Press, or you can always order it from your local bookstore.